that you, I don't know, a coworker to come to one of the fun events um, or it's back here to Salt Company and then for Open Gym next Thursday. So with that being said, we are going to read the scripture like we normally do, but um, I don't know if you guys have noticed as we've been reading the scripture every week, we've been reading the same small chunk of scripture, um, but it has like, a, there's a ton of, the Church of Antioch had a lot of diversity and um, just people from all different backgrounds. And so tonight we actually wanted to um, just, yeah, embrace the diversity that we actually have here at Salt Company and have one of our students, Emily, um, read the scripture in Spanish and in English. So, yeah. Emily, you want to come join us? Hey, I'm Emily. <laughs> uh, so we are reading Acts 13, 1, 2, 3. And then I'm just going to start reading in Spanish, and then I'm going to read in English. Um, en la iglesia que estaba en Antioquía, habían poet, eh, profetas y maestros. Eran Bernabé, Simón, al que también llamaban el negro, Lucío de Sirene, Manaén, que se había criado junto con Herodes, el que gobernó en Galilea, y Saulo. Un día, mientras estaban celebrando el culto al Señor y ayunando, el Espíritu Santo dijo, «Sepárenme a Bernabé y a Saulo, para el trabajo al cual los he llamado». Entonces, después de orar y ayunar, les impusieron las manos y los despidieron. And then, now I'm just going to read it in English. <laughs> um, now, there were in the church of, at Antioch prophets and teachers. Bernabas, uh, Simon, who was, oh, sorry. Uh, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, that, uh, the, tra the traitor, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, oh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas, and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Um, Padre, te agradezco por este tiempo que nos das. Um, por favor, ayúdanos a, a entender tu llamado, a ir tu o llamado y decirte sí. Eh, te pido que en esta iglesia... Eh, podamos decir sí a lo que tú nos has llamado. Eh, mediante tu espíritu, ayúdanos y te dejo este día en tus manos. Bendícenos, cuídanos y protégenos. En tu nombre yo oro. Amén. Uh, I know that like, we got some people out of town, people going home for Easter, so I'm just glad that you take the time to be here with us this evening. Uh, if you are here for the first time, we honor you. We are glad that you're here. Uh, you're catching us in the second to last week of a series called Gospel Change. We've been looking at this church, Antioch. Um, it, it's a church in the New Testament. It was one of the first churches that was planted after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most influential churches, period, that we see in the New Testament. And what we've been doing is spending some time paying attention uh, in these first three verses of Acts chapter 13 to the way that the gospel came to Antioch 
uh, changed and impacted in Antioch and then went through Antioch. So uh, our first week, we looked at how it came to. The last three weeks, including this one, we've looked at uh, how the gospel came and changed Antioch. The gospel came and changed the people there. There was a gospel change that took place. And next week is going to be sweet. We'll look at what happened uh, after this uh, moment, what, what happened through this. And this has been our rhythm, right? The gospel comes to a place before it goes through a place. The gospel comes to a person and changes a person before it goes through a person. So we're looking at one final thing uh, in the church at Antioch, one final idea uh, about gospel change in Antioch. But before I do that, I need to tell you a story about my in-laws, uh, Scott and Wendy Pierce. Molly, who is just singing up here, is my wife, uh, Molly's parents. It's a great, great tale. They are uh, incredible people. Uh, they love God. Uh, they love their neighbor. They loved me really well. Like a month into Molly and I dating, they invited me to come uh, for Thanksgiving, which is like kind of like was terrifying for me to be honest with you. It was great, um, and it was just a, it was just a great space. They've been super inviting. I want to be like Scott as I continue to to grow in age and in the Lord. But um, they they are awesome. But there is there is a a pocket, a moment, a season perhaps, of division that comes to the Peterson household uh, once and sometimes, like in this last year, twice every year. You see, Scott Peterson grew up in Waukesha, Wisconsin. So Molly was born with a cheese head already on, y'all. Like, she's been a Packers fan from the jump. Her mother, Wendy Peterson, and her younger brother, Jacob, wear purple and white more than anybody else that I know. So imagine the division within this house, Packers and Vikings. It's, it's just always kind of this like, just like this low roar that's just, just kind of cycling around the home. But there are those Packer Vikings Sundays that come and, and, and it rises to the top. This is hilarious. I did the thing where I checked, um, I checked Twitter and I found out who won the game because they were watching it recorded because I can't remember where we were. So I'm like watching everybody who had not know what the score is, like have these emotional like bandwidth highs and lows. And I'm in the back like reading a book and just chuckling. It was incredible. Um, like that was great. Uh, you might ask me, Rudy, what's your dog in this race? And the answer to that is <laughs> I'm from Tampa, Florida. And before Tom Brady was there, I was there. So go Bucks, and we're going to buy another Super Bowl. Um, so <laughs> get it under control, Rudy. All right. Yeah, okay. Get it under control. Okay. Um, so while Scott and Wendy come from different camps on Viking Packers Sunday, those different camps do not create a division that destroys their home, family, or marriage. There, there are points of division that can wreck marriages and homes and families and communities and cities. There, there are these types of divisions that can exist, but there is a status of restoration within the relationship between these two who come from differing camps. At the end of every Packers Viking Sunday, peace is made and there is reconciliation in the house. And, and in a sense, this is actually what we're seeing take place in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. While it's not obvious at first glance, it's actually an incredible picture of, if you need a title for the top of your page, note takers, I've got you. I love that. Like, I've started doing that, and now everyone kind of just goes, assume the position. Um, gospel reconciliation. What we're seeing take place is gospel reconciliation within the church of Antioch. 
To really get at reconciliation, we got to do a little bit more background work on Antioch. So last week I told you that it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, economic hotbed, major trade route, uh, and by both sea and land, which actually caused there to be multiple people groups and nationalities and ethnicities that would congregate and come and, and make their home in Antioch. There were multiple ethnic people groups, a different and diverse cultures that were gathering in and around the city. And the reality of these multiple and ethnically diverse and uh, different cultures in Antioch actually shaped the landscape of the city. Literally from when the city of Antioch was created, was built from the ground up, there was a wall that went through the middle of it to separate the Greeks from the Syrians in that place. And by the time we actually come across the church of Antioch in about, in, in sorry, in the first century, in Acts chapter 13, there are, are roughly, or at least, sorry, 18 different nationalities, 18 different ethnicities that, uh, groups of ethnic peoples that call Antioch their home, each in their own little pocket of Antioch, each doing their own little thing. It was an ethnically isolated context and town, and it was unlikely that anything was going to change that. That was just how things were done. There was only overlap when there was trade or economic money to be economic money, the other kind of economic, right? Okay, when there was trade or money to, to be done or, or to be made. But in Acts chapter 11, we see in verse 20 and 21 that the men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus, and the Lord's hand was on them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And that's the beginning of the church of Antioch. That's the gospel coming to Antioch. People came to the Greeks in that city. Now remember, there's a wall down the middle, so there's a whole other group of people, and there's all these multiple other groups of people in there as well. So th they, they come to the Greeks, but they don't stay just with the Greeks. They continue to proclaim the gospel, and the gospel changed everything about the way that they lived, moved, and had their being in that city. A people who were once lost, a part of a city marked by speed and by busyness and ethnic isolation, encounter the story of Jesus, begin to follow the way of Jesus, put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and everything starts to change. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. When we see all of these names together, we are not just seeing a roll call, we are seeing a move of God. Look at these for just a moment. Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These may just read as a list of names, but we can see from the jump that this list of names, this group of prophets and teachers, the leaders of this religious community were a multi-ethnic, multicultural group. Barnabas and Saul, Saul is Paul's Hebrew name, uh, were Jewish men. Simeon, Simeon, sorry, called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene, which was modern day Libya, were African. Uh, Menaean, a friend of Herod, was Grecian. So you have Jewish, African, and Grecian men leading this church in the first century. That didn't happen. Guys, like that didn't happen. Leading a religious community together? No way. Doing business together? Barely. Being in relationship and community together, you'd have struggled to find it. This was something that the city of Antioch had not seen before. This was unheard of. It was telling a new story about how humanity actually was designed to move together. But the gospel had changed everything. Not just, hear this, not just, not just their relationship with God, but their relationship with one another. 
You say it like this. They had been reconciled in their relationship with God, and they had been reconciled in Christ with their relationship to one another. In Antioch, we are seeing the impact of what we'll call the gospel both accomplished and applied. We see gospel reconciliation both accomplished by Christ and applied. Reconciliation accomplished looks like men and women separated by their sin from God are reconciled back into relationship with him. That's the reconciliation accomplished by Jesus Christ. Reconciliation applied is men and women separated by a myriad of reasons from culture to sin and everything in between reconciled back to each other. And ultimately, this application and accomplishment of reconciliation is a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ changing the people in a place. If you turn your Bible just a few pages ahead, um, if you were to go to Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to head there. Um, I'm going to just live in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 for a little bit. This is a very popular passage, but often we only read a couple verses in it and don't actually see the way that these two are so closely related. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, we see both the gospel accomplished and the gospel applied. And I want you to pay attention to how closely these are related in the mind of Paul as he writes this scripture. See, he'll break down this text across three different movements. First, you'll see the human condition, which is our need for reconciliation. Then you'll see gospel reconciliation accomplished, us to God. Then you'll see gospel reconciliation applied, us to one another. And it starts in Ephesians chapter 2, just verses 1 through 3, to see our condition. And you were dead in your trespasses and your sin, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, our sinful desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Welcome to Salt Company. I mean, yeah, like great news. No, it's actually intended to articulate the need that we all have, that humanity has for reconciliation in our relationship with God. There is a human condition of need. Sin marks our human condition by articulating even in these first few verses, our separation from God and from each other, from each other. Pick a category that that the algorithm has caused you to get outraged over today, right? Ethnic superiority exemplified in racism, wickedness, vengeance instead of justice, political herd identity, big things and the little ones. Sin gets into the cracks of our relationships, the beef that you have with your roommates that you're pushing off and stuffing down because it just feels like too much to go and deal with it. The grudge that you're holding against your parents for that thing that they said that you don't even know that offended you. The way your friend group like constantly mocks one another and you, you don't really like it. You wish you were like honoring and encouraging of one another, but you kind of go along with it because it's just what you've always done. That like sarcastic comment that someone made a couple days ago or a couple years ago that still like bites at you at night. Sin has this way of pushing itself into the nooks and crannies of our relationships and actually pushing us further and further and further apart. Sin separates us from God and it separates us from one another. Sin separated 
Another way to say that is that sin breaks. And broken things, if you've ever dropped a pot or a mug, broken things have sharp edges. And when we experience division, when sin gets in the cracks and pushes us apart, when we break and when we have sharp edges, we have a tendency to poke one another with those sharp edges. This is us in our sin. It's rebellion against God resulting in division among ourselves. Now, thankfully, this is not where Ephesians ends. You see two of my favorite words in the whole scripture come up next in verse 4. And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in these trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So how does God deal with our human condition? Quick reactive punishment, passive nature towards our sin no neither of those significantly better he is rich in mercy and he's got deep pockets because of his deep love for us he has made us alive with christ even though we were dead because of our sin christian can i tell you that you are saved by grace because of this god who is gracious you are seated with Christ in heavenly places because Christ himself has raised you up. You are a display of the kindness of God because God himself has shown you kindness. Even in your condition of brokenness and sin. A theological and practical word for what is happening here is that God is reconciling sinners to himself. He is doing this work of restoration so that we who, that we who have sinned could never do. Where there was once war between us and God because of our sin, he makes peace through the sacrifice of Christ. See, verses 1 through 3 show our need for reconciliation. Verses 4 through 7 show the God who accomplishes reconciliation. And whenever you see in the scripture, this is a Bible reading tip, whenever you see in the scripture uh, who we are and then who God is, just assume that what's coming next is the way that you're supposed to respond to the reality of who you are and who God is. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, probably some of the fam most famous verses in the Bible. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself, it's God's gift, not from works so that nobody can boast. The invitation here for us in our human condition and in our need is to turn to a God who can meet every single aspect and, and, and idiosyncratic detail and speck of it. He, he doesn't leave anything undone when he reconciles. He doesn't reconcile us in part. He doesn't reconcile a percentage of us. He says, you are mine. You get to come as you are, needy, helpless, desperate, and he saves us because that's the kind of God that he is. Look, I, if you're new here tonight and you've maybe heard like th this idea that you need to clean yourself up before you come to God, that you need to be impressive to, to God, that you need to prove yourself to God, that you need to be someone else before you show up, then you are with God. I just want to let you know that ain't true. It's not. He wants you as you are. He saves needy people because all we have are, all we are is needy people. He saves and he saves us from the separation of sin into restored relationship. That's the work of reconciliation that he does. He makes peace between us and himself. And I get so nervous when we talk about this. 
that it would just become so familiar to us that it would stop like losing its bite and its weight, that it would just be like some other thing that we are just saying in another room that you're sitting in and listening to someone speak. That we would just lose the wonder and weight of the reconciliation of God. That he would choose to do this. I get terrified that it might become so familiar to you that it becomes commonplace to you. That, that God would choose to reconcile you and it would stop causing you to be amazed and look at him with wonder. See, if we're honest, gospel reconciliation is both startling and scandalous. It is startling that God chooses to reconcile to himself those who have willfully turned away from him. That is startling. That does not make sense. But he does it anyway. It is scandalous that he would look at us, that he would look at you, and he would say, I can handle your past, your present, and your future. I want you. I will save you. I've sent Christ for you. For your past, your present, and your future. Do, do you know that there's no such thing as a Christian without a past? Like, you know that? Like there's no such thing as a Christian without a past. Heaven is full of people with pasts who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The church that you'll be in, hopefully here at Docs on Sunday, we'd love to see you. But the church that you might find yourself in, every single church is full of Christians who are imperfectly following Jesus with pasts. And yet they have been reconciled by God through Jesus Christ. Your connection group is led by someone with a past. Hello, your salt company is led by someone with a past. Christian, you have a past that apart from Christ is more than enough to condemn you for all time. I have a past that apart from Christ is more than enough that, to condemn me for all time. But God saves sinners because it's all he's got to work with. So now the past is dead. And the new life in Christ has come. Condemnation is no longer a possibility. We've been saying this because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is startling because we don't deserve it in a culture that says we have to deserve all of the things that we get. No, he gives this graciously as a gift. It's scandalous because you couldn't earn it in a culture that says you have to earn everything that you get. And you can never earn this. You couldn't maintain this. You couldn't keep it if your life depended on it. And it did. So he sent his son to do it in your place. Still, still God loves, saves, and reconciles sinners. I need you to remember that on the day that you doubt. I need you to remember that the moment after you sin. I need you to remember that in the middle of your shame. I need to you to remember that what God reconciles, nothing can break. There's this verse that was a catalytic to me uh, becoming a Christian. I think back to that moment in July in 2010 when this word came to mind and I finally understood the gospel. John 10, 28, where Jesus is saying, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever take them from my hand. That's gospel reconciliation. The restored relationship that we have with God through Christ. It's eternal, it doesn't perish, and no one can take it away. That reconciliation is big boy reconciliation. It should leave us in a state of awe, startled at the scandal of a God who would choose to save and reconcile us to himself. And that's the first movement of gospel reconciliation. That is the reconciliation accomplished by Christ. 
God reconciles us to himself. And what is accomplished by Christ once and for all is applied in our lives day by day. Continue on to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Here's kind of the hinge point. We've seen the gospel accomplished, and now he says, hey, you're his workmanship. He's done this work in you. He's done this work on you. He, he, he's at work, and he's created you for good works. So now there's an application piece of this. What has been accomplished is now going to be uh, applied in our lives. So what's Paul's immediate next application of this accomplished gospel of reconciliation? What's the next thing that he says? It might surprise you. Verse 11, I'll just read a couple verses here. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, you were outsiders, called the uncircumcised, the outsiders, by those who were called the circumcised, the insiders, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made, hear this, both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made it no effect, the law consisting of commands and expressing and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might, hear it, reconcile both to God in one body. Both to God accomplished, one body applied through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 17. So right after he says you've been saved by grace through faith, you've been saved by grace. These are the good works I've set apart for you. He starts talking about, hey, and by the way, this is how you treat one another. Hey, one, at one point you were separated from one another. At one point you were distinct and different from one another. And now he's actually reconciled you to God and to each other. There's a really interesting thing to note uh, in here. There's a lot in that text. We're not going to teach the whole thing. Um, but there's a really interesting thing to note. And it's, it's actually seen uh, in verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility. So let me explain this. In the first century temple uh, where the Jews would go and worship, there were a series of courts separated by gated walls. Each court would move progressively closer to the Holy of Holies or the center of the temple. Essentially, who you were determined how far into the temple you could go without fear of death. Now, Rudy, you might not, sorry, now you might look at me and you say, like, Rudy, uh, fear of death, that's a little bit intense. What do you mean by that? It's literally what I said. Um, years ago, archaeologists found an inscription on the gate that separated the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, from a, a court that you could only go into if you were ethnically Jewish. And it says this, whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. That doesn't sound like reconciliation. That sounds like ethnically driven division. This is what division does. Division tells a story about another person or another group of people and says, relationally, you stay over there and I'm going to go in. The human condition of us and our sin not only allows for this kind of brokenness and division in our relationships and in our lives, it tolerates it. At some points, it celebrates it. 
where the human condition due to our sin divides us. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that, and that reconciliation that actually can unite us. We see it in verse 14. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility, making two people, multiple ethnicities, one people by his blood. Verse 16, he did that so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. That means that Jesus didn't just put the sin that separated you from God to death. He put the sin that separated you from each other to death. So that you might be one family, salt company. If I can just address us as a community from here, kind of on in. I want you to consider what it would look like for us to do that, right? This is the application of gospel reconciliation. If we have experienced the accomplished work of Christ in gospel reconciliation, here we see the application of it. Christ has put to death the hostility that existed between us and God due to sin, and he calls us to be one family, putting to death that hostility that existed between people due to division. So how do we experience that unity that he's inviting us into? How do we experience the joy and the delight of gospel reconciliation? I want to just lay out four things in front of you, four ideas that when it comes to reconciliation applied in our community, how we might pursue gospel reconciliation with one another. Four things. The first is this. Number one, tell the truth. <laughs> if there is a wall between you and someone else or between a group of people and another group of people, tell the truth. Don't act like it's not there. Don't act like it doesn't exist. Don't act like there's not some point of division between you and them or you and that person. Call it out. Tell the truth. It has to be identified before it can be dealt with. It has to be identified before it can be dealt with. Imagine someone going around like in literally the temple and being like, la di da di da there's no walls here. It's like literally it's a stone structure, dude. Like, oh, like, like look, look. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Right? You don't pretend that they're not there. If you pretend like they're not there, it doesn't make these walls of division and divisiveness go away. Reconciliation has to start with addressing what is actually there. When it comes to tearing down walls of hostility and relationship and pursuing reconciliation as a community, we have to start by telling the truth. Now, you may have to discern at times if this wall is a wall of hostility that needs to get torn down or a doctrine that's being challenged. So, like, doctrine stays, but division dies, okay? So, so let, let's say that someone came in and said, hey, Jesus never said that he was God. Um, uh, you need to reconcile yourself to me around that. Well, they're holding up the doctrine of divinity of Christ, where in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am that I am, saying contextually to this group of people, I am God. Uh, there are multiple places where he says, I and God the Father are one. He says he is God up and down the Gospels. He 100% says that he is God. Scripture and early church scholarship affirm this doctrine that he says he is God. If you try to tear down that doctrine, you become the point of division, whereas dividing walls of hostility are to be torn down. For example, if someone says, <laughs> I thought about what to say here as an example. You guys feeling tense? Um, if someone says you have to be blank political party to be a Christian, you have 100% put up a dividing wall of hostility. Truth be told, I'll take anybody who says that left or right to the gospels and scripture and frustrate you very quickly. If you feel politically homeless, welcome to the vast majority of Christianity, save for moments when foolish men have abused their power in religion and the history of the church. 
Christians are not represented by an elephant or a donkey. We're represented by a lamb. His name is Jesus Christ. He was slain for your sin. We have to start by telling the truth where there are walls of hostility. We don't play dumb with them. We address them. We tell the truth. Tell the truth, number one. Number two, conviction. We move with conviction. Once the truth is told and it's understood that reconciliation between us and God is what produces reconciliation between us and others, there is a point of volitional conviction that must take place. I have seen something that I did not see before. I am telling the truth about something that I ignored, so I am going to do something about it. Now, whatever that looks like is contextual to the circumstance that you find yourself in. But doing something may look like having a hard conversation with someone, may look like confronting someone over that dividing wall of hostility that is between you and them or two groups of people. See, hard conversations are often shied away from because we can get scared of conflict because we think that conflict is often a bad thing. But after, actually, conflict is actually sometimes a good thing that can lead to reconciliation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not just the peacekeepers who cower and run away from conflict every time it rears its head. Peacemakers sometimes have to step in and actually pursue reconciliation within the context of a community. And I believe that hard conversations actually honor the strength of the relationships that we have. And that you can have a hard conversation and not be dishonoring. You can have an honoring hard conversation. We have a tool that we taught our leaders a little while ago that I'll, I'll just share with you now called reps, R-E-P-S, to kind of shape a hard conversation and how to have it. Number one, you step into that place and you are, you re repent first, actually. You begin with the acknowledgement of your own need for grace as you step in to have a hard conversation with somebody. If the difficulty of this conversation has gotten you frustrated or angry and you've reacted out of that, you should actually confess that to the person that you're having a hard conversation with. You set the tone and the pace in that conversation with a first step of humility into it. And you set a pace for honor and humility in the context of a hard conversation. R, repent. E, engage. Engage. You seek to understand before being understood. You ask questions before you make accusations. You lay out the issue and make it clear that you want to ask questions to understand how or why this thing has happened. That takes maturity. That takes weight. That takes depth. But you engage in the conversation. R-E-P, patience. You be patient with them, and you ask them to be patient with you. You honor them as a person. You be clear, but you don't spiral if things ex escalate. You practice patience in the context of hard conversations, and you are patient with them, and you ask them to be patient with you as you're seeking to be understood as well. And then finally, S, steps. You clarify next steps, and you continue that conversation. Where is their resolution? Where is there a lack of clarity? What do you need to do next? It's an example of a hard conversation that you may need to have. We tell the truth. We act with conviction. Three, we, we, we step into gospel-empowered activity. What do you need to do to put unity into practice? What is the activity that is called for as it relates to the wall of hostility that you're living with? So check this out. Jesus has torn that wall that you're tolerating down. He has taken the burden of hostility. So what, what do you need to do to embody and pursue reconciliation? This is a gospel-empowered activity. Maybe someone hurt you, and you need to confront them. Maybe you sinned against someone, you know it, and you need to go ask for forgiveness. Maybe you're making assumptions about someone because of whatever reason, and you need to actually check your assumption and go talk with them about it. You see, Christ has accomplished peace. He's made a way for peace. And what we don't deal with, when we don't deal with walls of hostility, we are tolerating something that Christ himself has torn down. 
to move with gospel-empowered activity. And four, we practice reconciliation. You see, reconciliation is seen in relationship. I've said this in other contexts before, but if we have statistical diversity and relational segregation, we do not have reconciliation. If you have beef with someone and you need to forgive them but haven't, we are missing reconciliation. If you look at someone and you find a reason to exclude them from your circle, even though you've been saved by the same Christ that they have, we may be missing reconciliation. You see, the gospel calls us, draws us to open up our circles, not build dividing walls between us and others in the community of Christ. Christ has made us one with God and one with each other. So now we practice that with one another. I want to pause here, just as an aside, if you'd let me. A question I get asked a lot just be big brother Rudy here for a little bit. Um, when, when this t- conversation comes up is how do I like pursue reconciliation or forgiveness or peace in a place or with a person that is proven to be dangerous or abusive? Um, first, I wanna say if, if that's your experience, I am immensely sorry um, and it's not for right now, but if you wanna come find me or Katie or Molly afterwards, we wanna walk with you through that with all the resources that we have at Gospel, we take that incredibly seriously. But as it relates to this question, I think there's been some good advice given in some places and some really bad advice given in others. Uh, Westcott says that nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness, whereas nothing if we look deeply is more mysterious or more difficult. So let me address this idea of forgiveness and danger and abuse by dispelling five quick myths around forgiveness, five myths of forgiveness. Myth number one of forgiveness is that you need to return to the relationship or context you were in after you've forgiven them. That's a myth. The reality is that forgiveness does not necessitate you staying in or returning to an abusive environment or dangerous relationship. To forgive means to let go. Miroslav Volf um, said that to forgive is, is to give wrongdoers the gift of not counting the wrongdoing against them, but it does not necessitate the gift of you returning to that dangerous or abusive context. You can forgive and still leave. That's myth number one. Myth number one, I need to return to the relationship or context after I've been forgiven. Myth number two, even if someone's apology seems empty, I still have to receive it in return. That's not true. Uh, Forgiveness does not mean that you have to accept empty apologies. You may need space and time away and may never need to step back into that relationship again for the sake of your soul and your life. You can forgive them. You can let it go. But it does not mean that you have to return. Myth number three, forgiveness means that I never talk about this with anyone. That's not true. Forgiveness does not mean that you have to stay silent, especially in dangerous contexts and contexts of abuse, which leads me to my fourth one, which is the myth that forgiveness means I need to avoid pursuing justice. The reality is that forgiveness does not mean that justice should be withheld. If you have been abused, harmed, or endangered, you can simultaneously forgive, and you are right to pursue justice for that. Finally, myth number five. Forgiveness means I have to act like I'm not suffering. Forgiveness does not mean that. Forgiveness does not mean that you are not still suffering consequences based on the decisions of other people. Forgiveness is a step and stage in the process of the gospel healing you, but it does not necessitate that you stuff your suffering. I hate that I have to address that, but I know in a room this size that I do. This is a particularly 
abusive or dangerous scenarios, but to go back on, there are still plenty of dividing walls of hostility that are not marked in context of abuse and anger that are still devices and call for reconciliation. And if this idea of reconciliation feels difficult, that's because it should, because it is. It is actually something that can only be truly accomplished by the work of the gospel. And, and, and like reconciling us with God and us with each other. It took Christ coming to accomplish it. Because this reconciliation actually tells a story to the people around us about the Christ that we proclaim to worship and to follow. Sometimes we can tell a wrong story with the way that we operate in community. It's actually why Paul writes to the church at Philippi about these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. Um, he writes to them, if I may paraphrase the Bible, to squash the beef. He, he writes to them and says, hey, everyone knows that you two are beefing over something. And he says, make it right. Why is that so important to Paul? I think it's important to Paul um, for at least this reason. Like, imagine that you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they look at you and they're like, oh my gosh, Lily, um, I like really want to know who Jesus is. Like, you've explained the gospel so clearly, da 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 but... Like, there's these two people that are at Salt Company that they just are, like, so, like, in, like, conflict with one another. And it feels so public and it feels so da 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 da, -da like, whatever. And, and that person is sharing the gospel with Lily and looks at her and says, so you mean to tell me that the gospel can reconcile me to God, but it can't reconcile that person to that person? Lily, I don't think I believe you. How could a gospel reconcile me to God, but not that person to that person? It tells a story about the gospel that's untrue. Division says something that is untrue about the gospel. Division says the wrong thing about the gospel. Division says that reconciliation is good for me and God, but not good for me and others when it's tolerated. But Ephesians chapter 2 crushes that. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, he has made those who were divided into one people, one family. Reconciliation speaks to the power and presence of God vertically and horizontally, accomplished and applied within a community. That's what captured the attention of the city of Antioch in part. Because of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ was reconciling natural enemies together. People started hearing these rumors, a, 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 church, a, a community led by Jews, Africans, and Greeks, we've never heard of that before. Their community, their, the unity in their diverse community was an apologetic for the gospel. Their reconciliation said something to the city before the gospel was ever proclaimed in their embodied relational reconciliation. Folk rolling up like, how is this possible? And their answer would be, we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to save us from our sin and rose from a grave three days later so that we might have new life in him. And now us living that new life out in him means that we're also reconciled to one another. So we pursue peace with one another. We make peace with one another. That's the new story that we're telling in this community about a good God who sent his son to save us and to make us one family. See, the story of division is replaced with the story of reconciliation. This is a beautiful reality of reconciliation. Reconciliation, friend, gives us a new story to tell. Molly, you can, you can come on up. I'm, I'm going to wrap this here. Um, Emmanuel Katangole is a professor at Duke. Um, he wrote a book called Reconciling All Things. It's pretty incredible. Um, this is just a selection from it that I felt grasped this idea really, really well. 
So he writes that in 2006, we organized a gathering for 40 African Christian leaders pursuing peace in Uganda. They gathered from the surrounding countries of South Sudan, Rwanda, and Burundi. One of the biggest surprises was learning the courage it took for these people to gather together. One of the Katangalese pastors spoke of the wars between the nations of the Christians who were gathered. He spoke of his horror of Uganda's previous dictator, of the war between his people in Uganda, and how he'd never been to Uganda before, and when he walked through the doors of the airport, he was terrified when he arrived. But then Katangole writes this, he says, but then the man smiled as he looked at him and said, but the gathering changed that. Here he said, Emmanuel, a Ugandan, embraced me as I walked in. I never have worshipped with someone from Sudan, but there they are. All denominations, all people, all gathered, all worshipping. And with a laugh, he declared that he was extending his stay in Uganda for two days. And he said that if reconciliation of people happens, they will say that it started here. And he closed by saying this. He said, I am going back to the Congo with a new story to tell about Uganda. Christians, the gospel gives us a new story to tell. The reconciliational work of the gospel gives us a new story to tell. We have a new story when it comes to our reconciliation that's been accomplished, that I once was separated from God, but I now have been restored to relationship. We have a new story to tell when it comes to reconciliation being applied. I once tolerated and fueled and celebrated division between me and others, but now I actually pursue peace. I pursue reconciliation with the other people who are around me, striving to live as that one family as Christ has reconciled us to God. We are now reconciled to each other. When Jesus Christ accomplished this reconciliation to God and to others through his life, death, and resurrection, he has given me a new story tell through this gospel. So just for a moment of focus and concentration, I'd ask you to close your eyes and, and bow your heads. I won't ask you to do anything public or, or odd if that makes you nervous. You don't have to close your eyes if you don't want to, but I do want to ask you two questions. Just give you some time to consider. Two questions around what it might look like for you to live into this new story. Uh, the first question simply is this. Have you been reconciled to God? Like, has reconciliation been accomplished in your life? Have you looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you to save me from my sin. It's separated me from you. I see it separating me from others. I need you to save me. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? You can do that tonight. You can do that today. You don't have to wait. You need to push it off. You don't have to look somebody. Right now, in your need, as you are, you can come, be reconciled to God, peace made between you and God forever. Be reconciled to God. Question number two, if you have been reconciled to God, do you need to pursue reconciliation with someone? Just one of the questions. If you stay, please stay still.
is necessary for us to be restored to relationship with you. For our sin broke it and caused separation with you for our reconciliation. We are grateful. Thank you for it. God, I pray that we would be a community marked by reconciliation, that we would tolerate no walls of ability, Christ, of, of, of hostility, Christ, that you have pursue reconciliation, we would see the gospel at work, changing 